and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we are answering three bloody stupid questions in Attack of the Bee Movies. Posing and answering those blee th- those blee thruddy stupid <laughs> posing and answering those three bloody stupid questions. We have me, Mike Collins, imposter syndrome incarnate, man with microphone and learning designer at the Open University, and Oh, and Mark Childs, a senior learning designer at Durham University and a guy with a PhD in education. And me, Mary Jacob, I'm a lecturer in learning and teaching at Aberystwyth University. And what do I have? <laughs> <laughs> you have the awesome. I have a wild hat. <laughs> like, what, what a terrible moment for an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> what do I have? Why is my what name? am I? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me start that over again. Exploring Mary's existential crisis. <laughs> I don't know, Mary. I kind of like that version. <laughs> Um, <laughs> hi, and I'm Mary Jacob, and I'm a lecturer of learning and teaching in Aberystwyth University, and I have a wild cat who likes to join in on podcasts. Oh, hello, wild cat. Is wild cat with us at the moment? Just cross the computer. Eagle-eared listeners can listen for a distant meow and a rattle of keys later on. So uh, we're doing something a little bit different today. I feel like I say that a lot in a lot of the episodes we do. Maybe we're just not very consistent. Either way, uh, we thought it'd be fun just to do some mini pedagogzillas, i.e. answering some mini bloody stupid questions related to pop culture and pedagogy around something uh, that came out of another recording with Mary, uh, which was B-movies. So yes, we will each be posing a uh, a pedagogic question uh, around one of our favourite B-movies, including Tremors. Um, (laughs) I like it. I wouldn't say it's my favourite. So, yeah, uh, before we dive into the questions, we should probably disambiguate what a B-movie is. I'll jump in with um, with a hook. B, a B-movie is not necessarily a bad movie. Segway to Mark. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, this is why I thought this might be an idea, because I mentioned Tremors as a B-movie, and uh, I, one of the things I got back on Twitter was, it's a good movie. And I go, yeah, B-movies can be really good movies, so... I think a B-movie is, they started off as being the support feature in a double in a double feature. So, you know, back in the day, you'd have two movies at least uh, presented together. And, the B, and often the B-movie wouldn't even be advertised. You'd just know there was going to be a support feature and you'd go along and you'd expect to see it, two movies. And the B-movies tended to be genre movies. They tended to be you know, it's that division between high art and low art, between like cinema and, and flicks that I think still, you know, if you're Martin Scorsese, then you still have that kind of definition that some cinema is high art and some of it isn't. And B-movies are definitely not. But it doesn't mean that they're not good movies. They can be, I mean, if you go back to like the universal horror movies, the Mummy and the Wolfman and all that sort of stuff, those are the things we still watch for still watch from that time film noir still watched a lot more than probably the movies that they were supporting so yeah it's uh, their genre movies they tend to not take themselves too seriously there's stuff that just works you watch it and you just think yeah that is that just does the trick it it's not overblown it's it, they're usually pretty short they're like an hour and 10 minutes an hour and 30 minutes and there is something joyful and unpretentious and 
that still I, and I think still defines, still creates the idea of what a B movie is, even these days when you tend to not have double features, when you know you only have the A feature left. I think that the distinction is a bit different because the, often the genres that used to be B movie genres, like science fiction and superheroes, are now have millions and millions of, of dollars spent on them uh, as opposed to you know what a, a, an act so i think that's i think that's what i think b movie tends to mean b movies for me is anything that feels like it's a better watch on a knackered vhs that you've rented from a corner shop yeah you know a, a bit of popcorn and a few and a few beers or whatever yeah but i think about b movies um from when i was a kid they were definitely the low budget movies so these really big, expensive blockbusters, even if they're the same genre uh, that we see now, are probably this, all those superhero films are probably not B-movies, exactly. Actually, one of the reasons why when we first talked about uh, doing this B-movie special episode, uh, why we thought it might work so well, is because of something you said, Mark, about them generally, less money means they tend to be less overblown. They tend to be simpler mm. ideas and simpler concepts, which if you're using them as a, as a framework and a lens to understand something, uh, makes things a damn sight easier. It's a much easier to sell kind of a simple idea or story um, and then to uh, to unpack it against uh, you know pedagogy or something. Um, then perhaps, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which has so much going on within it that, yeah. um, you know, you have to you end up... Or, or Dune, for example, mm. uh, where, you know, you can take 25 minutes just describing the universe before you, you get into the pedagogy. Okay, I was just going to ask M- Mary, because you were growing up in the States, and did, you, did they still have double features when you, were, when you were a kid, when you were watching movies? Yes, we did have double features, and we had drive-in movies as well. And those yeah. might be good for something that would be a B movie, even if it's only shown on its own. <laughs> so, oh, I'd love to do a drive-in. They sound amazing. I saw the film Magic with Anthony Hopkins in a drive-in. I will never forget this. And then I ended up renting the film much later. And it must be one of the worst movies that he ever made. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there used to be, I mean, when I used to, as a kid, watch double features and the b feature was nearly always dreadful and nearly always a british movie and i just thought okay this is quite i i'd rather not see this and then i found out a few years later that the reason why they did that was they were legally obliged to show a british movie before an american movie so you had to oh, sit really? through like before you watch star wars you'd had to sit through a 30 minute 40 minute documentary about scouts Going on their camping trip or something because there was a quota. They actually had that they were legally obliged to have a quota of British movies um, exhibited. But you tell kids today that and they won't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. B movies. Should we get in some questions? Yeah, go on. Yeah, I'll be kicking us off with um, the bloody stupid question How do we short circuit Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Okay, so short circuit, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, two components to that. We have short circuit, uh, the movie uh, year 1986, the year I was born, uh, probably one of my favourite films ever. Uh, and I'm conscious that I'm in a minority with that because the general consensus <laughs> is that it's a little bit crap. Hence it falling within this uh, B-movie thing. And also because um, I owned it on VHS as a child. And by the end, um, you know, a lot of the, the effects had kind of blurred into this sort of worn out cassette sort of smush. Um, but I absolutely love it. So anyway, uh, short circuit, I'll cover that first. 
brilliant movie uh, follows the misadventures and the growth of um, Number Five. He's a, a Nova Robotics Strategic Artificially Intelligent Nuclear Transport or Saint robot who is uh, struck by lightning after a kind of a military demonstration and uh, and goes on the run and is then pursued by Nova Robotics and the, uh, the their security team headed up by Schroeder, the, uh, the nasty uh, security chief fella who's, I think he's the same guy who plays just about every kind of sergeant or, or nasty captain in, in every bit of telly of that era. Uh, yeah, and he goes on wonderful adventures, on the run. Uh, he meets Stephanie, um, who is looks after animals and takes in strays, and she takes him in, uh, and he grows and develops uh, as a person uh, until eventually uh, he meets his creator, uh, who finally, finally acknowledges that, yes, perhaps he is indeed alive. Um, and yeah, there's wonderful tearful conclusions to the movie which i'll probably spoil for you later in my explanation uh where he's trundling along in his little robot tracks and uh running away from this big helicopter and it blows him up and oh no tears but then it turns out ah he built it out of spares because he's a clever robot and all of that stuff but i'll get into some of the finer details uh, as i talk about maslow's hierarchy of needs but just to say i absolutely adore this movie i can talk along to half the lines but i do acknowledge by most metrics it's pretty iffy Particularly, actually, in um, some of the uh, the blackface that they do in it. Uh, oh, really? Oh, I don't aged. remember that. Very poorly. Yes. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, the actors uh, sort of uh, dressed himself up as, a, as an Indian fellow to uh, to do it, which uh, yeah hasn't aged well. And also, it had a, a sequel, Short Circuit Two, which was from that era where everybody was like, "Oh, every sequel is the same movie again, but in New York," um, and it was diabolical. But anyway, uh, so. That is the world's briefest introduction to uh, Short Circuit uh, and number five. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The gist is that human actions are directed towards goal attainment. um, And there's various tiers of this and that each uh, tier of need uh, must be met in order to be able to achieve the next tier of need. So those tiers are, and this is me working from the bottom of the the pyramid up, listeners, if you can imagine a big pyramid with at the very very bottom uh, physiological so those are your base bodily needs so that's uh, food sleep snooziness sauciness all of that all of the stuff that um, gets your juices going in or out that kind of thing so that's the very base of the pyramid and then the next step up from that uh, are your need for safety so that's the futurity you have in your uh, environment in your life your job uh, and your supply of your physiological needs Above that then, so above the physiological and safety, you then have uh, your sense of belongingness, so your, your need for belongingness, so for love, for friendship, for bonds with your family, uh, for peeps. Uh, and then above physiological safety and belongingness, you have um, your need for esteem, for self-esteem. So that's your confidence in yourself, your self-esteem, your you know feeling of being a person that you want to be. And all of these together um, support, at the very, very top of the pyramid, the pinnacle the pinnace 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 uh, <laughs> self-actualization which is where you grow uh, it's your creativity your growth uh, your personal philosophies it's the growth that you achieve by having the kind of the support of the uh, the preceding tiers of need um, and from a pedagogic perspective that self-actualization is the space that we're sort of primarily interested in as it's kind of the growth of all aspects of a person so sort of knowledge uh, personality that kind of thing so that's a very 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 quick introduction to the hierarchy of needs and it's one of those things that once you hear it you're like oh actually this kind of makes sense because you know mm-hmm. you've got to have the 
various kind of bits and pieces in place for a person to feel uh, secure enough to kind of move up. You know, you can't have um, uh, safety, a sense of safety uh, in your uh, security of home and food, for example, if you don't have any food or shelter in the first place. Um, you can't have a sense of um, self-esteem without actually feeling like you belong to any groups, that kind of thing. Recently, interestingly, actually applied this when I was looking at um, our induction for new starters um, and thinking about what we did and didn't cover within that hierarchy of needs. And noticed that belongingness and esteem, actually, we don't cover quite as quickly, perhaps, as we should um, in order to uh, kind of really allow people to be in the space where they can learn and kind of uh, feel like they're developing within the role. But anyway, returning to my question in Mm -hmm. this very condensed Pedagodzilla format, how do we short circuit Maslow's hierarchy of needs? And I've done a sneaky here because I've done short circuit as in the movie and as in the actual short circuiting. So if we assume that the goal is self-actualization, so the goal of both number five and you as a student, then we simply introduce an existential threat to any of the bottom tiers, which are interestingly all called the physiological tiers, despite the very bottom one being the kind of the base physiological tier. Now, Captain Schroeder, the, the nasty chap, who I mentioned earlier, uh, does this in a very literal sense in the short circuit movies. He does it by threatening all three of the bottom cheers during his pursuit of number five. He attempts to destroy uh, number five, um, attacking his physiological safety. He attempts to uh, to chase him away. He doesn't give him the safety or surety of environment. He challenges his um, uh, his need for safety. And he also threatens and endangers his uh, proxy family. He threatens and endangers Stephanie and his his friends, thus threatening his need for belonging. And interestingly, at the end of the movie, the kind of one of the, the sort of act three, uh, last sort of 20 minutes of the movie, is where number five is able to achieve his own real self-actualization and the progress of his identity uh, during a night of safety in the mountains. So he's there with his friends, he's got food, he's got shelter, well, everybody else has food, he doesn't need food, he's a robot, that's here, very much uh, accounted for. Uh, and he's able to have a kind of uh, a frank discussion, also a very frank and even discussion with Crosby, Newton Crosby, his creator, about philosophy. Um, and in basically sort of a, a social constructionism bender, uh, they have a sort of a grade A pranking and laughter and mutually arrive at the conclusion that, yes, uh, number five is indeed alive. Uh, he's not just a machine that thinks he's alive. He's a living, feeling, sentient being who understands that slapstick will never not be funny. There's actually there's a wonderful bit where they do like the Marx Brothers and things in there. It's just it's a it's a great bad movie. If you've not seen it, watch it. If you've not rewatched it in 20 years, re-rewatch it. It's fantastic. And then there's this big climactic chase, a helicopter, a rocket explosion. Number five's blown to smithereens. There's tears, but hang on, it's a decoy. And number five, at the very end of the movie, literally as the credits roll, caps off his personal growth and literal self-actualization by naming himself uh, as Johnny Five, something that he was only able to do once all of his um, needs in those tiers were met. So yeah, that's my that's my case. That's my case for answering the bloody stupid question: How do we short circuit Maslow's hierarchy of needs? We introduce existential threat. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Taught myself horse there. Well, uh, okay, maybe I need to reevaluate the movie then, because I remember watching it thinking, "Oh my god, this is this is uh, this is awful." <laughs> <laughs> But all I remember well, now that's I why I movie. It's, well, all I remember is 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 the is the robot lifting up its arms and going, number five is alive. And that's that's uh, that's the bet all I remember of it really. So maybe maybe there's things I've I've forgotten that actually make it quite a good No movie. disassemble. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you know it, Mary? Have you seen this film? I haven't seen it, but, you know, I'm going to look for it um, on the online streaming services to see if I can find it now. So that might be the entertainment for this evening. It's it's wonderful. I I absolutely adore it. So that's my that's my case, and I have some thoughts as to kind of pra- practical tips that could be or uh, edu practice tips that I still need to come up with. What was the name we came up with last time for this, Mark? I think it was tips for your practice, wasn't it? Because you'd got yeah, practical so tips for I, your practice, and you thought that was a bit tautological, so I just dropped one of the <laughs> one of the practice. The <laughs> I think yeah, that's all so, we did, uh, wasn't it? I've got. I've got yeah, I've got some resultant tips from practice, I think. Or oh, okay, resultant. Okay, yes. Coming consequence, from the consequent tips um, for your practice. Consequence, that consequence tip, tips for your practice. Oh, bloody hell, we are. God, we're on fire today with <laughs> the long words. Um, but yeah, I, I wondered if you had, excuse me, any thoughts about, well, uh, short circuit, about Maslow's, um, or about uh, tips for people's practice. C's, easies. Can I jump in here? Because I think I yeah, was really sure. inspired by what you said about belonging. I think that's a really important issue, especially in these uh, pandemic, I would say post-pandemic, but it's obvious the pandemic isn't over, so it's still pandemic times. I really mm. think that with the uh, various pivot to online, back to, cla- back to classroom, back to online, back to classroom, high flex, all this stuff, I really think that students as well as staff to some extent are feeling the impact um, of that sort of breaking apart of the normal automatic social construction of a group that you belong to. So I think it's really valuable for us to um, build in something in the intent intentionally into that learning design so that, yeah, this is not necessarily about the subject material, but this is going to help you to get to know each other and you are part of this group and your voice is valuable. Um, and I mean, I personally have been stressing that quite heavily in the PG cert, but I think that applies to pretty much all teaching. Yeah, it's it's definitely this pandemic environment has made me more aware of how important it is and how big the gap can be in that, you know, the, the togetherness, the belongingness and the importance of establishing those sort of flat social activities that allow people to a integrate themselves into a group, but also build a bit of social esteem, a bit of kind of feeling of yeah. parity within that group by doing activities which aren't necessarily related to the subject at hand but put people on kind of like a flat plane if that makes sense so you know a game for example which everybody can play just because it allows everybody to interact at the same level uh, get to know one another and as i say build, build up that, that that initial sense of self-esteem within that group so mike can i ask you a question have you just described using maslow's hierarchy to dissemble a, hi- a hierarchy <laughs> oh my god well that would have been a better question wouldn't it oh. oh man that's so good i need to write that down somewhere i was gonna say i've got a document in front of me i'll write it here. well you're the one who said it <laughs> what i mean no you're the one who used the words i just did the blather and then you were like ah let me spin gold from this turd um, <laughs> i was also gonna say um oh you hang on he's writing it down you can hear the little t keys tapping yep. away i'm good Unless that's Mary's Sorry. cat. <laughs> no, so I was going to also say, <laughs> the window now. All right. I was also going to say, and acknowledging um, that people still don't feel safe. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you, there's still mm. a pandemic going on. It's still, people are still getting infected at massive rates. Um, and people aren't necessarily going to be in the space to learn as effectively as they would be normally because. You know, you're still feeling under stress a lot of the time and under attack 
by you know pathogens when you go outside because because that's still going on and i think that needs to be acknowledged and will probably still happen for a few months after as we you know once the pandemic's over then people will still be it will be people working through the stress they've been feeling for the previous however many years it ends up being and i think that needs to be acknowledged as well it, you know that if people are need extensions for their exam the exams or their assignments then you be a bit forgiving about it and go yeah maybe maybe we're all going through so much crap at the moment that we need to take the gas off the the pedal off the gas a bit and that i mean at that very basic level we don't need any physiological threats or uh, existential threats at the moment because we're going through actual real ones all the time still i think that's a really 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 good point that's just reinforced the self-esteem level of my hierarchy thank you very much michael (laughs) (laughs) that's fabulous i'm i'm conscious i want to keep these sections as tight as possible okay so let's move on to our next um our next question in part two of the show Okay, so Mary, go. So my question is, how can we avoid injecting bunnies, that is our students, with a serum that is a teaching method that turns them into monsters or at least has a different effect than intended? So that's the question. Well, my B movie is called Night of the Lepus, and if you don't know what lepus means, you can look it up. But there's a reason why the uh, the filmmakers did not put what lepus means in the title. I think they had an anticipation that maybe it might inspire laughter. It's meant to be a horror film, but it might seem a, a little bit too cuddly if they said bunnies. So <laughs> this is one of those movies with a very low budget. And so, and this was in the 1970s, 72, I believe. And they, you know, well before CGI um, and all of the wonderful effects we have. So everything they did was in camera special effects. So uh, the plot of this movie is very simple. You've got uh, rabbits are wreaking havoc around the world, but, you know, in the countryside. And um, so something must be done, ordinary wild rabbits. And so the farmer calls in his friend who is a scientist and says, what can you do to help us, you know, reduce the rabbit population? And we don't really want to go out and kill them all because we want to do something that's gentler and environmentally safe. They have the environment at at heart, you know, so they're looking after the environment here. So he says, well, I have something that might help. And then they have this idea. They take some lovely fluffy bunnies who are not wild rabbits. They decide to inject them with a serum and then release them into the wild to interbreed. And this will end up reducing the rabbit population. So I was watching this film on Monster Vision, narrated by or or introduced by Penn and Teller. So right off the bat, you're set up to be <laughs> laughing at it. It was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely hilarious. But I was watching it with a scientist, and we had a great laugh about a particular line. So here's the setup of the film. So the, so rabbits are running rampant all over the world. They're destroying the countryside. They're eating the grass that the horses are meant to graze on and all this stuff. And the, and the, the rancher would like to 
control the rabbits without damaging the environment. They don't, he doesn't want to kill them. So he calls in a scientist. The scientist says, I have something that might help. We can inject these domestic bunnies with a serum and we'll release them out to breed with the wild rabbits. And that will cause them, we think that will cause them to uh, not breed so much and reduce the population without actually killing anybody. But there's the best scene in the film. Just before they do the injection, the scientist holds up the, the syringe in front of the camera and says, I wish we knew what effect the serum would have. And that injects all the bodies. <laughs> that, that became a catchphrase for me and the scientist for a couple of years. I wish we knew what effect the serum would have. Because scientists don't really work that way, do they? Oh, it's terribly irresponsible. Oh, I love that. So as one might imagine, the, um, the, the bunnies don't stop breeding. They turn into giant rabbits that are threatening the town, and they use some really cheesy special or non-special effects to uh, bring this forward in the film, So, such as designing a model railway to be the town and, rele- and releasing some domestic bunnies to hop around this model <clears throat> railway and look like they're giant bunnies, or, or put a man in a bunny oh suit when he's when a bunny's supposed to be no. a human. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, and obviously not oh my God. near the same scale as the one that can stomp on the houses. And then the kind of a horrible scene: the, the bunnies are supposed to be attacking the horses on the ranch. So we see scenes of the horses. We see scenes of fluffy bunnies jumping over some rocks. Scenes of the horses. Scenes of the bunnies. Now they have raspberry jam on their faces, and this is the real <laughs> yes. effect. <laughs> oh, so they've great. obviously done some damage. Um, they do obviously, as with any horror film, they get out of control and they get destroyed at the end. So that's the film. We do not want to do this to our students. So, in an educational context, what is what does that mean? How? Many times do people sometimes are tempted to pick up on an idea that they hear about. That sounds like a great idea. And maybe even could be make a mandate that everybody's going to do this new thing. And then without necessarily knowing what this effect this serum will have, they don't necessarily have the evidence that will tell them what would this method do what effect would it have on our students' learning? Um, what is the best way to use this new tool? Sometimes we see this with e-learning type things, ed tech. Something new comes out and everybody jumps on board, but it flops because the learning design hasn't been factored in. You know, it's just use the tool, but not what are you using the tool to do? So we can't sometimes see that kind of thing. I think that happens when people get under pressure. So... Where I think that the scientist has a lesson for us, maybe, is to think about the evidence. What is the evidence for whatever the new thing is that we want to try? How do we know it will have that effect? And for me, I, I tend to look at the cognitive science and, you know, where we actually have loads and loads of studies with, um, with evidence about how students learn and try to figure out, you know, okay, here's a new platform, here's a new approach. 
how does that fit in with the evidence that we already have and how can we design something that's going to be effective for it? So that's really where, where I would see this coming into play so that instead of turning our, our lovely students into monsters, we turn them, we move them on the spectrum from novices to experts and empower them to do something meaningful and really learn. <laughs> That's what, what are you going to do with that last bit? It's like, so, so instead of like mutating them, we're going to reduce the student population. No, no. Well, there's there's been a lot of talk lately about why aren't students in our classrooms, and I think that's another case where we're, let's see if we can look at the evidence and find out why that's why they're not coming back mm. to the classrooms in the middle of a pandemic. So my takeaway from this film and thinking about uh, cognitive science and other evidence about learning and teaching is. Use the evidence. Don't just jump to conclusions. See what I did there? Oh, oh! you start with a pun and you work your way backwards. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, it jumped oh, into wonderful. my head at the last moment when I was thinking about what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get caught on the hop. Oh. <laughs> so what do you guys think about evidence? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so evidence, yes. Um, I, I'm actually very, very guilty sometimes of doing a surface level scan of stuff uh, and it's something that i try and be i'm actively trying to get better at is actually kind of critically looking through what evidence there is for things and i've been trying to apply it not just for this podcast where i'm conscious that um i do occasionally lean on mark a little bit more than i should uh with regards to mark is this a true thing and then mark either <laughs> going yes yes it's very true or mark going no 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 not true um so actually sort of trying to get better for that in terms of the podcast but also um in more aspects uh, of my life for example um uh, sort of a friend of mine recommended cbd oil uh for helping sleep i thought oh okay I wonder what um, sort of the studies say about this. So I actually mm. looked into what the literature was, and it was a case of, oh, it turns out that all the literature says we desperately need some big studies on this ASAP because all the little studies are pretty rubbish and are flagging up some really interesting um, and not always positive things with regards to sleep. I was like, oh, okay, that's really, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I to totally, totally agree. I think it's um, a good thing to be using not just in the pedagogy you're applying to students, but also uh, a skill that you're giving students so that they're able to better navigate and understand life. I think it's fantastic. Better than I could have said it. And well, I think you said it better, and you said it with a joke at the end. Um, Is a little caveat, a little content warning. Um, I did some research into this film. It, it was filmed in, in 1972. And during that time, um, it was against the law in the States to harm any animals in the making of a film. So we know that they didn't do that. And there's, you know, it was checked. That film was checked by the appropriate board. They didn't harm any animals. However, they did something in the film that did, that does make me a little bit uncomfortable, which is they took some archival footage of some rabbits being culled, I believe in Australia. And they put, a, they put a few, a scene from that at the beginning of the film. So those are real rabbits who are being uh, shot and they weren't, that didn't happen for the sake of making the movie. That was something that had happened anyway, but um, it's not necessarily sort of, as you were talking about the blackface, it's another caveat. It's a caveat for the film. If you, can fast forward through that bit, you'll probably get a really good laugh out of that film anyway. But just to give you a little 
advance notice. And Mark, your thoughts on evidence? Well, I was going to talk about evidence in uh, in relation to the B-movie I was going to talk about. So if we go into that, then that could actually be a way for me to extend or expand on Mary's point. Okay, Mark, Tremors, evidence, your segue, go. Okay, so um, I'll talk about what Tremors is. It's Tremors, uh, I think it came out in, uh, I think, 1989, about right then. Um, in the looking up stuff about it, I noticed that it's made by the same people that made Short Circuit. So there we no. go. There's a, there's a coincidence. So, yeah, and they kind of nail their their sort of B-movie status to the master bit because one of the exec producers is Gail Ann Hurd, who is an alumna of the Roger Corman <laughs> School of Filmmaking. So definitely B-movie status there. It's got uh, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward as a couple of handymen and who are always keep on planning on leaving um, City of per- Perfection. And I'm not sure Mary can help me out here, but I'm, I'm not sure what the, the criterion is for a, a city in the US, but there's only like about 10 people living in perfection. And they keep on, they keep on trying to get away, and then they finally decide they're going to do it. And of course, they've left it one day too late because people start turning up dead. And one of them is sort of dies of exposure on top of a pylon that he daren't come down from, and somebody else they just find his head. Meanwhile, they've met a graduate scientist. Uh, she's not graduate, she's graduate student, and she's looking at um, geology by setting off little seismic shocks. And she's discovered some weird seismic activity. And then bit by bit, they start thinking what's going on here. And they find some weird tentacles wrapped around their truck on their way back because there's been a landslide. So everybody's trapped in the valley where the city of perfection is. And they're basically, they all get together in the local uh, department store, handware store, and they all start pooling their, their thoughts. And so they get the map out. And then Rhonda, the graduate student, starts talking about the seismic activity. And then Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, the handymen, talk about the dead bodies they've found. And then, uh, and then they go out and start investigating. And they find this subterranean animal that's been chasing them around. And these tentacles aren't separate snakes. They're all attached to this huge monster thing that, that travels around, which one of them ends up calling a graboid. Uh, because it grabs people. And basically, bit by bit, they're in this small little town of 10 little buildings, and the Graboids start taking it apart, and then they work out a way to defeat some of them, and bit by bit, they get more and more intelligence, they get more and more difficult to defeat. Um, and then finally, they just you know put all these different information together to, to kill the last big boss kind of Graboid. Um, it's a great movie, um, you know, no frills, it just does what he says on the tin. It's about tremors and it's about people being killed off one by one. But the characters are great. The acting's spot on. Um, the little girl ends up uh, repeating her role in Jurassic Park a couple of years later. There's a few sequels. Oh, and um, Frank Welker is the is the sound of the Graboids. So um, because Frank Welker has been in practically every movie ever, it reduces everyone's bacon number by one. So um, yeah, so no, it's just it's, you can watch it and rewatch it and love it every time. It's just brilliant. So I've been working my way through the sequels at the moment as well. Yeah. So anyway, so that's how it works. So what's, so what's your bloody stupid question, Mark? My bloody stupid question was: Well, how does the how does theory and practice come together to help dynamite graboids? Um, because I think this is this is the point I was going to make about evidence was. 
sure they have the uh, the graduate student with her seismograph measuring all these things and coming with evidence. She sees this thing and knows that it hunts by sound and it's subterranean. But also there's the practical experience of, you know, seeing the way that they react when you throw dynamite at them and see and looking at the way that they attack and sort of which things will help save you from them. At one point, they're pretty much like playing the game, the floor is lava, because as long as you stay on the granite, you're okay. But as soon as you get onto the alluvial soil, they'll get you. So they work this out from observation as well. So I think, yes, I agree that you need to base a lot of your stuff with teaching on the science, on cognitive science and about what we know about the brain. But I also think that there is a role for practice-based observation feeding that in so you do stuff and you see what works and what doesn't and as long as you're kind of systematic about that you don't need to have any kind of science pedagogical approach theory behind that you've just got a mass of skills a mass of techniques that you have observed tend to work by you know kind of putting them to practice over time and i think that's valid as well and ideally, what you've got is a mixture of the two. So that's, I think, my response to Mary's point about evidence as evidence through um, Tremors, the movie. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Grand. Works for me. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I I think it, if it doesn't work with your actual students, then it doesn't work. That's definitely the evidence. That's definitely mm. part of that evidence base. And sometimes we have to train ourselves to be really observant. And notice what are yeah. the signals and, and tr- make sure we're interpreting them correctly. So I agree with you. And that also applies to the movie is that, you know, some people make the wrong observations about what's going on. Um, they think it's a serial killer at first because they're not taking in all the bits of different evidence that exist, really. Um, so, yeah, so that works as well. Yeah, I'm just thinking it's a kind of application of, is it, would this be accurate to say it's like an application of the scientific method as well? So you could, by applying this, you'd call yourself a scientist. Yeah, so is anybody that applies the scientific method a scientist? I suppose so. There's not the problem with doing the scientific method on education is that you can't always create a control group. You know what I mean? If you were doing Mm. science, Mm. you would try something and then try it again, and then look at the evidence and see which things happen repeatedly and which things don't. And with a lot of classroom practice. That doesn't that doesn't necessarily apply because each time you do something, maybe something slightly different happens because of a mass of other stuff that's gone on. You know, I mean, in the in the second movie, they try doing the same thing and it works, and then it suddenly stops working because these uh, graboids have metamorphosed into shriekers. So suddenly they have to start <laughs> doing lots of different things um, in order to beat the shriekers. Now. I'm not sure whether or not that, that, you know, your students are like that. One year they're all graboids, the next year they're all shriekers. And in the third movie, there's something called ass blasters, but I haven't got that far yet. <laughs> so, so that, that feels like a real shame. <laughs> I don't know. I wish you had. <laughs> I'll tell you what an ass blaster is. Yeah. So I, I think, yes, you can apply the scientific method to a certain extent. But as we did on the thing about interpretivism and positivism, it's so much of it is about interpretation and about the the multitudinal multitudinal things that are influencing what a student's doing. You know, they you could try something with a class one week and it works, and you try it the next week and it doesn't because 
you know, there have been every half more than half the class has stayed up really late the night before watching some I don't know late TV show or whatever. You know, like a sporting event or something. I don't know. Tremors There's all it's watch your tremors. <laughs> it's like the new tremors movie. Yes, the scientific method, and we should be applying that in our lives anyway. You know, um, somebody recommend, like you said, you're about your CBD oil. Yeah, no, so yeah, scientific method can only take you so far because I think uh, because so much of it is not reproducible because it's a really, you know, kind of, uh, it's an environment in which so many different sorts of things can happen and influence things, and you can't do these sorts of cut and dried scientific clinical trial type things with, with students. Yeah. And if you tried to do something like that with a control group and an experimental group, if you have a really great teaching intervention, the control group won't benefit from that. And that doesn't seem to be completely ethical to me. So yeah, you have to be careful to be fair. Yeah. So if we put these three films together into a triple feature, Mm -hmm. what would happen then? Oh, It would be a hell of a night. I think if you're going to watch them as a triple bill, you might want to end up on the sh- with short circuit because it's got that kind of feel good existential thing at the end. I mean, you know, the 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 tremors ends on a happy note in that uh, the Kevin Bacon character gets together with the graduate student, and you know, and um, they go off, and you hear in a couple of movies later that they're doing really well, and you know, she's selling books and comics and things based on graboids. So, you know, they, they, there's this sort of nice bits come out of it, but definitely you want the existential sort of upliftingness of number five is alive, I think, to finish with. Yeah, that they sounds like a good Lupus. Lupus. lupus tremors uh, short circuit. Yeah, uh, ideal triple bill, really. Fantastic. And I suppose by the end of that, if you've been watching those movies with your pedagogic classes on, coming out with a feeling that if you're <laughs> applying without evidence, then you're running the risk of turning your students into giant mutant bunnies unintentionally. That when you're teaching, you need to try, apply and consider the results of your teaching and then use the evidence to try again and be aware that you'll never be able to stop doing this because what works today might not be what works tomorrow. Finally, it's very difficult to learn when you're feeling socially isolated or under existential attack. Yes. Does that sound like a, a good summary of the triple bill? It does. Bill? That is exactly yeah. the, I think that's that's spot on. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I'd been able to say it correctly the first time as opposed to well. jarbling my words. And <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I, just, I just think we ought to. I love the triple bill and I think we ought to find a drive-in that is willing to show these mm. three films on the same night and we can bring big old tubs of popcorn with us. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my god, we could actually do this. Do you know what you can do at Cineworld? You can rent out a screen at Cineworld for less money than you'd think, oh, and just okay. play whatever you want there, including video games. Wow. Crazily, I'm I'm so tempted to to do this because um, I'd love to watch Short Circuit mm. on the big screen. That would be incredible. And have we got something generic? Well, they're saying that if we could do it at the the cinema in Abba. Oh, that would be the problem. Is how do we all? Where, where would we do it? Because we're all so geographic. Well, I suppose yeah, we could all go to Abba with. Yes. <laughs> so, and have we got something generic to say about the root usefulness of B movies in in making these sorts of comparisons? Yeah, as um, you're right, uh, B movies as a tool for as as a lens for for examining a pedagogy concept um, and just sort of learning and teaching in general are just very useful because they do tend to be a little bit simpler, a little bit less, as you said earlier, overblown. Um, I think 
simplicity of the structures and the narratives uh, lend themselves very well to brief summaries frameworks as we've um, discussed here well also yeah i think yeah there's the, the because they're simpler they act more as a kind of they're more of a blank page on which to add to to what kind of work your own particular interpretations on really and also the quirk there's a lot of little quirky bits as well that i think mean that you've got sort of different things to hang it on as well so maybe yeah and i just love b movies i just think those are the things that will survive when the high arts disappeared, you know, because people love that sort mm. of thing more than they like the overblown stuff. You know, I mean, think of, even the 19th century novels, you go back to those, the the novels like, uh, I was looking at Conan Doyle's stuff and his novels, you know, the great works of fiction, people don't read those. They read the they read the Sherlock Holmes stuff and the Professor Challenger stuff, the low art stuff that he tried to get away from. But that's what people remember. And I think, you know, 20 years from now, mm. 30 years from now, it's the it's the low-budget, fun, quirky, individualistic things people are churning out that people want to come back to, not the big blockbusters. So in, in a strange way, they're more um, human. They're kind of down to an everyday level even if they have uh, non-human elements that often come into these films. Absolutely. sort of relate to them. They're like everyday people, you know, oh, if that ever happened, if tentacles ever came out of the earth and grabbed me, what would I do? How would I feel? (laughs) Well, because they're made by everyday people, you know, they're not not made by – okay, it's not that they are unsuccessful people, but, you know, they're not these big major blockbuster – high art people they are tend to be people made at the start of their careers when they still have something different and interesting to say and haven't been broken down by the system it's like a band you know you you only really want to listen to the first four albums a band makes because after that they're too successful to create interesting music i think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with films and especially you know of course uh, streaming has taken off but then now mm-hmm. Netflix seems to be, at the moment, their stock suddenly went down. And now they're saying, oh, maybe Netflix is on the way up. But we don't really know what's going to happen. But I think people have moved into other modes of um, making uh, films and making um, you know, television series or series, partly initially in response to uh, these streaming platforms, but then also now in response to the pandemic. There's that that thing with it was called staged with David Tennant and um, oh yes um, oh I loved that that was so yeah, good it was so good it was so good and that was extremely low budget but done yeah. for a pandemic context it was absolutely brilliant so maybe we see more things mm-hmm. like that with new directions for innovation and in our teaching yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then That's yeah. scary. I mean, this this is us coming from big universities as well. If we're like, ah, oh, so actually, all the interesting, all the big innovations are going to come from the, the mom and pop startup higher ed stuff. So watch out, universities. <laughs> oh, what's the B movie of education? Um, it'll be the FE colleges. That, it'll be the FE colleges that are doing bits of higher education. Oh yeah, H-E and FE. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, okay. So, um, Mike's still not happy with that as an answer. <laughs> no, no, no. And this, I was a hmm, as in a hmm. Mm. Like, oh, okay. A, a, a mulling over a tasty biscuit, kind of. Mm. Oh, Tim Tams. Somebody brought in some Tim Tams today. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe we should do a biscuit, <laughs> biscuit themed episode. It's definitely reached the end of the day if you're talking about doing a biscuit themed episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
We can start. We can do an episode on anything. <laughs> we can oh. do uh, biscuits. <laughs> biscuits. Chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. No, we we'll hobnob with each other. Oh, man. Twix. Neither Twix one thing nor the other. Oh, it's always good. Oh, dearie me. Have we slipped so far into delirium? Um, I, th- I think I think we need to wrap this Moves episode wrap up. up. We've, yeah, okay, wrap up. We've, we've, we've only disappeared into the long grass. We've then gone to the corner shop around the corner from the long grass. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for listening to this B-movie special. We hope you like the format. Um, I had quite a good time doing it. Um, you guys enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, yeah. I just realised how much I love just talking about B-movies. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess we might do something in this uh, this format again, uh, possibly in B-movies, possibly in something else, but definitely some minis again, because that was a fun way of doing things. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you did, then great. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. And you can find me on Twitter at MaryJacobTEL1. You can also get uh, Mary Jacob's excellent uh, weekly roundup of uh, edgy resources over at we can put it into can we put it I'll, I'll just stick it in the chat because this is the actual url and i don't want to say all those letters so listeners uh, mary's just put a qr code into the chat so um you're going to read that out in the top left hand corner followed by two blanks then two more small squares then a large square then a small square then a large square then some blank white space then a square oh the h t t s colon forward slash forward slash <laughs> and that's all we've got time um, <sighs> Mike and I are doing are taking Pedagodzilla on tour at the Playful Learning Conference so um, yeah we'll put a link to the um, conference details in the show notes as well we love you lots and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla goodbye now bye bye now Mark, you always sound so sad at the bye. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, I like that. Hey. Oh, no, you that's, got that's I didn't realise you were still recording. Oh, my God. Ah, please.